excellence is a very difficult term because in anything you do in any field, there is a degree of excellence and sometimes they're different standards. So a work that's done by the community may not have the polish and the finish. That's something that a highly skilled professional company can bring, but it might have something in terms of its intent, its effect, its participatory nature, etc., that really makes it as excellent as anything else. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Singer, writer, stage director, artistic director, Robin Archer seems to have packed multiple artistic lifetimes into one. Uh, she has performed as a cabaret star, uh, run festivals in Tasmania, Adelaide, Melbourne, Canberra and the Gold Coast, uh, and uh, put out more than 10 solo albums. Uh, she is a powerhouse of stage and screen uh, and somebody who is uh, uh, a huge contributor to building Australia's creative talent. Robin, thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the Good Life podcast today. Oh, it's great to be here, Andrew. Thank you. So let's start off. Tell me about your great-grandmother. Ah, my great-grandmother, yes. Uh, she was Mrs Public House uh, at the British Hotel North Adelaide and indeed she was a Cockney from the East End of London, um, emigrated out here with a man who I thought was my great-grandfather but was nothing of the sort, simply the man she eloped with. Um, and when I was four years old, we went to live at the British Hotel. Dad was the head barman and the SP bookie um, and mum worked in the lounge, uh, especially at busy periods. Um, and we lived upstairs. And so Nellie was, uh, I, I, I imagine that now I would think she had uh, OCD. She was very precise, gave my mother a lot of headaches, but I found her a marvellous creature and um, she taught me my very first song to be performed in public, hoisted up onto a table in the ladies' snug. And in those days, indicating my age, it was six o'clock closing in those days. And uh, at five, Nana would high kick down the stairs with me, uh, take me into the ladies' lounge. She would serve a round of drinks, hold the empty tray at shoulder height and kick it up over her head. I think Nana was maybe late 60s, early 70s by then. And then she'd pop me on the table and I would sing a little song for the customers. So um, I always say I never had a chance, really. <laughs> uh, so she was then about the age that uh, that you, you are now uh, and uh, you would be quite uh, comfortable uh, kicking a tray over your head, I, I imagine? Uh, indeed I am. And still, and still I'm lucky to say in good voice. So I must have inherited some good genes somewhere. Do you remember what that first song was? It was, My young man went to France to teach the ladies how to dance. First on heel, then on toe. That's the way the ladies go. I'm quite sure I was oblivious and still am of what the political or social dimensions of that song exactly were, but someone will tell me one day. 
And the uh, the family tradition ran ran deep, didn't it? Uh, it wasn't just your uh, your great grandparents, but your uh, your dad as well. I understand was uh, quite comfortable performing. Yeah, dad was mainly raised by that grand great uh, great grandmother. His his own mother, uh, in the midst of the depression, had to find work, um, had to find, I think, a new husband. Um, and so a young a young lad kind of was more in the care of his grandmother than his mother for quite a long time. Um, and uh, dad, yes, became an entertainer. Um, I think possibly he might have longed to be an entertainer uh, more than anything else. He was a terrific singer. He was a wonderful stand-up comedian. And through all the period that I knew him in my childhood, um, and I say I kind of apprenticed myself too, Dad. I, I learnt so many things about putting a show together, about how to work a room, um, very, very valuable skills I got. He was untrained. I think he uh, he always regretted that post-war he was offered a scholarship to the conservatorium and didn't take it up. And I think he regretted that. I think he would like to have been a full-time entertainer. Nevertheless, he was out most weekends um, and I'd just be at home with mum uh, during the Christmas periods and holiday periods. He'd be doing six nights a week in December, as well as he always had a day job of one kind or another. So, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a born in a trunk story. It's true. How did you uh, make your way into, into singing as a school child? Um, at school, my talents were actually in painting. Um, I was winning prizes. I was presented to the governor for being the youngest ever exhibitor in the Advertiser Open Air Art Exhibition. Um, and I was very, very interested in painting. I believe I got kicked out of the primary school choir because I couldn't sing tunefully enough. Um, and uh, I, I gradually got back into singing. My dad had given me a plastic ukulele and a three-minute teach-yourself book when I was eight, but I found that the nylon strings hurt my little fingers but when passion started to rule and puberty hit and the hormones hit, um, I found that I could play jailhouse rock on the ukulele and I started taking it to primary school and entertaining the crowds at lunchtime and found that I could really draw <laughs> a crowd. So this looked to me like a surefire way to popularity and I think... I think that also had something to do with the fact that I was no good at sports because of the asthma I'd had almost since birth. I wasn't a good uh, sports person and they were the persons that were most popular. Uh, I was also quite good at schoolwork and quite often top of the class. That's also not good for popularity. So if I whipped out my uke and sang a bit of rock and roll, um, that started to be the key. Very shortly after, the man who was not my great-grandfather uh, bought me my first guitar. I started appearing then on local television, etc. So I think my story is probably not so different from the kids who will go on Australia's Got Talent or The Voice or something like that, not trained, largely untrained, and finding another way. And in some senses, I think parallel to the way Dad worked, you know, not trained, and he did, uh, he had to go to the country during the Depression to be with a, a rather cruel uncle, but he got into the shaman's boxing tent troops. He would box um, and he would sing. And I think that's always been the way from the kids from the other side of the tracks. It's the, the girls sing, Piaf, for instance, um, and the boys take up boxing. So it was, in a sense, that was part of a very, very old tradition as well. 
Yes, I only know about uh, Shaman's Boxing uh, through uh, the Midnight Oil song, but it's, it's, I've always thought of it as a bit of an Australian legend. So that's sort of interesting, right? Because you, unlike your dad, had the opportunity to train in, in the arts if you'd wanted to, um, but you chose, in, chose instead to, uh, to, to study English at Adelaide University. Why, why was that? Um, I'm, look, I'm not too sure. That was a strange trajectory. So I was singing and, and singing, as I said, on local television. They were sort of quite nostalgic for the fact that there was so much local television produced in Adelaide at the time. Um, the Country and Western Hour, Adelaide Tonight, a variety show, etc. And then I made it onto National Bandstand. So that was all while I was at high school. So I was kind of, you know, with, there was no music taught at Enfield High School uh, because I'd been streamed into the top science stream. I wasn't allowed to do um, woodwork or economics or art, as it were. Um, that is, you know, painting, drawing, etc. So I started up the music club there, etc. So I was sort of going it alone in those dimensions, and I matriculated with science. I've got double maths, physics and chemistry, although my chemistry uh, score was not good. Um, and from then on, I started to move into the humanities. Um, I did a very broad spectrum at first year university. I did uh, English, Latin, uh, politics and philosophy. And I think always the pragmatist, I got my best marks in English. I was offered an honours in philosophy or English and took the English and thought that was it. And I've never regretted that. It was absolutely fantastic. All the time, of course, through university, I had made a deal with mum and dad because I didn't take up my teaching scholarship that I was awarded. I pleaded with them to be able to take up my Commonwealth scholarship um, and said to them, look, if you give me room and board, I'll pay for everything else, my transport. So I bought a moped, uh, my clothing, etc. And I was managed, I managed to be able to do that through my singing. So I was singing, I joined the university review, etc. I started to do a bit of drama. So uh, there, there was always, and I think always for me, right from the start, two sides. One was the entertainer, uh, one was the person that was interested in that stuff. And the other one was the academic, always very interested in sitting down with my books and researching and solving puzzles, etc. Who were the main musical influences on you at that stage of your life? Um, first of all, from when I was 12, when the hormones hit, I'm sure it was just anyone that was, it was the popular singers and I loved Connie Francis. I loved Jean Pitney, uh, Del Shannon, all those, just those great, great singers. Um, but uh, through the, what was called in those days, the Australian Record Club, where you could sign up to be a member and you got relatively cheap vinyl LPs. I just mean not costly, very, very good LPs. Um, my friend Kathleen had heard of Bob Dylan and we got a Bob Dylan LP. At that point, I'm pretty... <clears throat> Pretty sure I was already listening to Peter, Paul and Mary and singing some of their repertoire and had sort of got into the fact that folk music was starting to be at the top of the hit parade. So I was very, very influenced by, by folk performers and started to grow my hair long and got myself a decent guitar. In fact, was sponsored by the Allens Music Company just on their own spur sort of, here's an up-and-coming kid and gave me a guitar. It did have a little sign on it that said Allens, which was prominently displayed. <laughs> Nevertheless, it was a generous offer um, that I hadn't sought myself. Um, and uh, so I started to, to get the experience, first of all, through 
Bob Dylan and I remember the first listenings, Kathleen and I sitting down in our lounge room listening to it on my little record player and thinking, who is this old crackly voice? And by the end of the album, the times they were changing, we were absolutely sold. And through him, I imagine, it was be it was then that I started to listen to all the music of the American protest movement. And that's when I was getting Phil Oaks, uh, backwards to Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, and started to, I think, for the first time then pick up on uh, politics and art being able to be very enjoyable and in the same medium, if you like. Um, so from then on, it wasn't entirely altruistic. As I said, folk music was top of the pops when I competed in Bandstand Starflight International in 1964. I think uh, something like three or four out of the 10 finalists were folk singers. So there was a, a degree of youthful ambition there. I thought I could become uh, famous uh, and wealthy if I became a folk singer. And you uh, fast developed an interest in uh, German cabaret, that uh, that sort of Weimar uh, ca cabaret of the 1920s, um, about which I, I can never think without th without thinking of that uh, Tom Lehrer line, uh, where he refers to uh, uh, the, uh, the the German cabaret of the 1920s that did so much to forestall the rise of Hitler. Uh, what, what is it uh, about uh, about the the cabaret of that period that uh, the, that you, you admire? Um, it, it took a while for me to get into that because up until the early 70s, I mean, I was starting to write my own songs. Um, you know, I did a, a stint for a year in the Sydney Leagues clubs, etc. And I'd still class myself at that point as an entertainer. Um, and and then it was it was by pure accident that a very very good friend really who changed the course of my career entirely Justin McDonnell was then uh, the administrator of New Opera South Australia and that was a small company really begun in the lounge room um, very much a, a salon affair if you like whereby some good people of Adelaide really wanted to hear more contemporary opera. They didn't want the, just the 19th century repertoire and they wanted to hear um, a whole lot of things that they weren't getting to hear and they decided that they would do a production of The Seven Deadly Sins by Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht. And Justin had remembered me from university. Um, at that time, I was singing in a sort of Dirty Dick's Tavern at the Old Lion Hotel in Adelaide, but he remembered me from them. They wanted someone who was untrained um, as Lottie Lenya had been when Kurt Vile wrote it for Lottie, his wife. Um, and so Justin came to me and said, would you be interested? And as somebody who um, is often invited into things that I know little about and I have to learn on the job, I was scared stiff, but I said yes. I didn't read music. I had to perform with the symphony orchestra for the first time. And it was the first time really that I'd worked with a professional director in, in Wall Cherry. Um, and, uh, you know, a terrific repetiteur, Chester Schultz, took me through the stuff which I had to learn by heart, by ear, by heart. Um, he was very painstaking. And we did the production and it was a, a great success. And I think it was it was then or soon after when the same company did the Thruppany, Brecht and Viles, the Thruppany Opera, that they invited John Willett, the scholar and translator of Brecht, out to Adelaide to be the dramaturg on that production. John heard me, he very much liked the way I delivered things uh, and started feeding me all this material. Um, and that's been the course of my involvement with 
the Weimar stuff that I'm still very much involved in. Um, after John, it was uh, Michael Morley, who's been a, a friend and a pianist with me, for uh, an accompanist for 40 years, but Michael was also the professor of drama at Flinders After Wall. And um, he had actually been mentored a bit by John at Oxford. Um, and they keep feeding me material. So what's interesting for me is that repertoire has, I think if it didn't still mean something today, I would have not still be singing it. But every time we come to that repertoire, those songs, and I'm still discovering songs and poetry to this day, there is so much relevance to any situation you happen to be in contemporarily. And, um, for instance, I've just finished reading on Michael Morley's advice, uh, Stefan Zweig's The World of Yesterday, which was written in 1940, shortly before he suicided. Um, he was a, a, a Jewish author from Vienna, a typical story of exile. But there are so many things that he is writing about in 1940, about the rise of the Hitler period, that is so scarily like today, so much hesitancy, so much trusting in bogus theory, uh, so many people having a bad time and being swayed by a powerful orator that they sort of forget their humanity. So the strength of the repertoire, it was a wonderful find. In some ways, I think there's a sort of accidental connection of of cabaret, if you like, right through my life, right from the time when I was learning from dad how to put a show together. When he was putting together a show, I learned how things fixed together. And so I was able to put together a good song set. But then when I met John, I started to understand um, the cabaret, the classic cabaret that had started in France in the 1880s and reached its zenith really in, in the Hitler period in the 20s. Uh, and early 30s in Germany um, and came to understand that not only did that dictate much of the way I put song sets and shows and my own cabarets together, but in fact how I put festivals together as well because it was John who taught me to heed the art of juxtaposition and that is whatever you put here in the program reflects on what went before and it in turn reflects what happens afterwards and that's the way you build a great narrative out of seemingly disparate material. Yes, and I'm keen to come to your uh, your festival work in uh, just a moment. But uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting the way you re reflect on the role of uh, German cabaret there. Um, for me, the Tom Lehrer quip sort of illustrates that uh, while uh, protest songs may not be able to stop the rise of a dictator. They are nonetheless vital in in helping people endure through ad adversity. And you know all of the, uh, the 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 stories as to the importance of that underground underground movement for uh, for sustaining people's spirits in hard times. Yes, I, I think it's true, and I I often come back to the Brecht poem, uh, bad bad times. You know. Um, Will there be will there be singing in the bad times? Yes, there will be singing about the bad times. Um, I think the the role of poets and writers and now clearly filmmakers as well as songwriters and composers etc. One of the things that they do is actually accurately record what's going on at any time. And very interesting when I've you know sometimes in the past talked about having a, a desk for the arts in every department. Um, in whatever level of government you are, P 
people kind of think, well, that's okay, maybe they acknowledge the role of arts in health these days, etc., and laugh at the idea that you would ever have a desk for the arts in war. But I say to people, you know, because of the recent commemoration of the First World War, how do we rem- how do most people remember the first world war it's usually not by going to the dry archives of the war department it's actually all through the artists it's through the painters the photographers the storytellers the letter writers the filmmakers etc um it's the artists who actually carry history in phenomenal ways and i i think uh, at our peril we as artists ignore that role that we have to play Yes, and the uh, the military is a significant employer of, uh, of musicians in, mo- in most countries. It's uh, it's difficult to think of an armed forces that doesn't employ a, a, a substantial coterie of, uh, of musicians. Now, you you spent uh, much of the nineteen eighties in London. Um, what caused you to leave, and and then what caused you to come back? I'm I've been terribly uh, guiltily reactive. In, in my career, I don't, I don't know, I, I, I lacked models. Um, I lacked, you know, I, I, I say I apprenticed myself to my dad in some ways, but I never really got advice. I dearly loved my mother and father and they couldn't have taken better care of the sick child that I was. But I can't really say I got advice. I certainly got no financial advice. Uh, Mum and Dad never owned a home. Dad never had a credit card. He considered all that to be a gamble that he was he'd done badly by in his youth, etc. Um, so I never. I think there's an interview with me when I might have been about fifteen, and I said what I wanted to do was um, travel and meet people. Well, you know, I got that so early, um, you know, that uh, I, maybe I just never wanted to, That's ne- It's not true. I always want to travel and it's always interesting meeting people. But at the time that I met John Willett and we did the Thrupani Opera, um, I hadn't been out of Australia. It's, it's unusual now for a person at 27 or so never to have been outside Australia, but I certainly haven't. There was no money for it um, and I'd gone straight to work after university. John Willett very much liked the way that I sang Brecht material. Um, He taught me very firmly that these performances were not about me. It was not about me standing on a stage saying, love me, look at me, aren't I marvellous? It was about me. It was about me being a very clear conduit between the text, the intention of the writer or the creators and the audience. That was my role. It was not about me. He enjoyed that very much. And when he went back to London, he was being involved in a... He'd spoken to me a little bit about it in Adelaide. He was involved in a production at the National Theatre in London, which was going to coincide with the uh, publication of the poems that uh, he had edited and many of which he had translated for Air Matthew. And they were doing a, a sort of composite show um, about all, all about Brecht's poems and songs. And he suggested to the National Theatre that uh, I be part of that program. Um, The National Theatre wrote a polite letter back saying, well, if Miss Archer happens to be in London, we would certainly consider her. Well, here's somebody that had never left Australia. Um, (laughs) You know, if I happened to be there. So that was one of those, you know, brave choices. Um, I had recently been paid... Uh, the largest cheque anybody in my family had ever seen in their life of $17,000 as compensation for a motorbike accident I'd had about four years earlier in Sydney. And 
that allowed the first deposit on a house, uh, but it also allowed enough money to be able to take a chance and go over to London. That's what I did. I went there. I stayed for a while with the poet Adrian Mitchell and his family, and then I stayed with John Willett and his family in Hampstead and did that production. So that was that was the first thing. I was there for six months. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. Um, there were some terrific people in the in the company at the time. Um, I thought I was, you know, brushed with fame. Jane Asher, who had been Paul McCartney's girlfriend, was in it. The great actor Tom Wilkinson was in it, um, among among many others. It, it was a it was a terrific show. I met the musical director Dominic Muldowney, whom I would eventually record the Brecht repertoire with at Abbey Road Studios. That was just six months. Uh, I came back to Australia then had a very, very busy few years in Australia. And when I felt that I'd kind of worn out, worn out my welcome here because I'd done every state and every large theatre, um, my manager and partner at the time, Di Manson, and I decided that we would go to America for the first time. And then we would go, and I went there for voice lessons, um, and then we would go to Britain and we, we enjoyed what we were doing there and we stayed there. I stayed there for the next 10 years, more or less. And then uh, after you came back to Australia, you uh, you stumbled, uh, I understand by accident, uh, into the uh, the world of, of festival directing. How does a uh, a singer songwriter suddenly end up a, a festival director? Pure chance, Andrew. As you know, as I'm saying about all of the things, it's I I kind of <laughs> I kind of sit around and do stuff, and then people say, "Would you like to do this?" Um, there had been um, a little bit of action in Adelaide by by a few people that there hadn't the the Adelaide Festival by the 90s had had a very long tradition it's just celebrated its 60th anniversary and there had never been a female director and there was a bit of rumbling about that I think my name might have been mentioned but I never really thought about it as a as a I never got into it in a serious way at all and it wasn't on my mind and I had no idea how to be a festival director um, it is something now that uh, you can study uh, to to a certain extent train for but I think like most creative endeavors it takes more than just that you've got to have some kind of spark as well there's got to be something else that you do um, and I was performing in the National Festival of Australian Theatre in Canberra a terrific festival and I was actually doing my French cabaret show there and one day the uh, director of the Canberra Theatre Trust David Gration simply took me out uh, for for lunch and said would you consider directing this festival um, and as Previously, um, I had no idea, um, but thought, well, I'll give it a crack. The one thing that stood in my favour was that at that time, I was the chair of the Community Cultural Development Board of the Australia Council. And so I kind of knew, and through my own performances, I, I felt like I knew quite a lot about Australian work um, and felt that I could learn on the job and learn fast and do well. So that was the that was really the first. And it's kind of interesting for me that 
my festival career started in Canberra and then the last time I directed a large thing was the centenary of Canberra some 20 years later. Um, interesting that it happened there. But it was because I imagine of the job that I did in Canberra, I then got the invitation to uh, direct the Adelaide Festival and that was a bit like being homecoming queen. Coming home, I'd spent a lot of time away from Adelaide. My parents were getting older. I loved the opportunity of being able to go back there and spend a lot of time with them and invite them to festival shows and all that kind of stuff. So so it worked very well. But I think the then the... Of course, you can't, you, you, you've got to be deemed to have created good festivals in at least somebody's opinion. But my advice to younger would-be uh, directors or any artist of any kind is always, I really am not good about the frills. Um, I, I'm much more inclined to say to people, put your head down do absolutely the best job that you can. Don't just think of this small festival being the stepping stone to the next or this small gig being the next step to the great big one. Just put everything you've got into that one and people will notice. If that works, people will notice and they will invite you. They will say, come and play with me. Well, Adelaide did that. And while I was doing that, Melbourne invited me in and then Jim Bacon down in Tasmania wanted an international festival and he said, can you come down and create one, etc. So it really just was, you know, you're only as good as your last job is a little bit true. Uh, um, and that's really how it happened for me. So I would have thought there's some tension to putting on a good festival, that you, you want to have your creative filter, you want to make sure that, that you're, you're getting only great stuff in but at the same time you want to put on a festival that appeals to people of broader tastes than your own um, how did you go about doing that about sort of widening your funnel as to uh, as to what you saw as uh, uh, as, as great art uh, but also maintaining the, the standards that uh, people have ex expect of a terrific festival yeah I've I've, I've done um, did a an, an interesting mentoring role and still do for the European Festivals Association in which young artistic directors and managers uh, listen to talk amongst themselves but also listen to some of us in the old guard and learn from our mistakes etc and we learn from them of course and there were some fantastic Zoom meetings at the end of last year. Um, these are These are such fantastic experiences when we had people directly from Beirut after their series of catastrophes, people from uh, from Armenia uh, with border wars happening, these young artists and managers talking to us about these things. And I've often said to them that it's very much about awareness. Um, an article that I wrote that will soon appear in a new journal called Turba, which is coming out of Canada, um, has some uh, extracts from the speech I made to those people talking about awareness and saying the main thing to consider is that you never know what you don't know. You've just got to keep your eyes and ears open all the time. You absolutely, in my opinion, to do a good festival, you can't simply program what is to your taste. And I think after a while, I think there you become, you know, if you're seeing on an overseas trip to a festival, you might go five, four or five weeks seeing three or four shows every day and you see so much that I think your own tastes become so refined that you're in danger of being disengaged from um, a more a, a, a broader taste. 
I don't think you can ever programming program anything that you don't respect, what, whether it be at a very commercial end or a very avant-garde, very challenging end, but I don't think you can ever just simply do something that you don't like very much but you think might be good for ticket sales or something like that. I think that would be the wrong way to go. I've always said, for instance, that I was extremely fortunate in the fact that I didn't come from an arty family. It's there, there, there. Maybe the next generation has has the potential. I've one uh, second cousin, nephew, as it were, um, who is a musician. Another one who his sister, who's interested in visual art, etc. And some aficionados amongst the young crew. But my family, although Dad was an entertainer, uh, Mum, Dad, and I sang at family parties. There were there was music and entertainment around. We had no arty books. I discovered visual art, for instance, by simply discovering Mary Martin's bookshop in Adelaide and finding a little book on cubism and started copying the cubists. And I think had I been able to study art at, at high school, I would have gone on to, to do visual art, maybe with singing on the side rather than the other way around. Um, I think that you've constantly got to be aware. And because I didn't come from an arty family with no art speak, when I was programming very sophisticated work inside the theatre, but also the Adelaide Festival for sure. And even we did this in Canberra and then, of course, in Melbourne and Tasmania. You're always programming outside, possibly for people who can't afford the ticket price inside or feel a little intimidated. You have to program something more to that taste. I was always programming for my family, as it were. What will it be that my cousins and my mum and dad would really enjoy without any kind of sophisticated art speak? What would they really enjoy? And that was a good clue for me always to say, don't program rubbish. You know that you know that they don't want rubbish. They want stuff that is as good in its way as anything for the highest price inside the theatre. And I think I had exactly the same attitude, although governed by my experiences in the Australia Council on the Community Cultural Development Board, of making sure that excellence is a very difficult term because in anything you do in any field, there is a degree of excellence and sometimes they're different standards. So a work that's done by the community may not have the polish and the finish that's something that a highly skilled professional company can bring, but it might have something in terms of its intent, its effect, its participatory nature, etc., that really makes it as excellent as anything else. So I think for me, it was just a constant process of being more and more aware and keeping keeping my mind open. I mean, it, it comes about, you know, in, in a sense, if you talk about the programming of women's work, all you have to do is be aware. Think, is there is there a woman? Is there a woman that's doing equivalent work? Let me consider that. Um, the whole nature, nature of cultural diversity. Are there people who are doing this work? What about First Nations Australia? What is the work they're doing? There is such it, it, you have in my mind such a responsibility to think about what is our whole society and to allow the opportunity, you may not always get there, but at least have the opportunity to think about the inclusion of that kind of work, not for tokenistic mm. reasons. Make sure that the work is really good. I mean, one of the things I had to have my eyes open to, even though I'd spent at that point 
a long time in London. I couldn't say that at that point I was an expert in international theatre or dance. And there was this wonderful moment where just very early into the job at the Adelaide Festival, um, the general manager at the time, Ian Scobie, uh, walked into the room, handed me a, a handful of brochures of international festivals and said, you've got to start somewhere. And I just had to choose a heap of international festivals to go to to start getting an experience of what the field of work was that I was looking at and what I was doing. So it's very, very much about awareness. The other thing that I say to, to young uh, people who would like to be involved in festivals is that you've got to be very aware of the power of the position of an artistic director that... Um, by including certain artists, you are making a statement and maybe affecting their career. By excluding some, you're also doing the same thing. So as in all positions of power where you have a platform, and in the case of the major international f festivals, it's a, it's a lot of money and a lot of opportunity for artists, you've got to be very, very sure that what you're doing, it's not just I'm going to serve this up to the audience. There are lots of consequences to your decisions and you just have to be aware of them. Can you give us a few examples of ways in which uh, being a festival director has expanded your tastes uh, of uh, particular styles of mu music uh, that uh, you wouldn't have otherwise listened to but you've come to like through your role as a director? Um, I think it would be more in something like I didn't know very much about contemporary dance, for instance. So, <laughs> so experiencing a very wide range of contemporary dance in a, in a festival um, like the Montpellier Dance Festival, to be able to go and sit through that for a couple of weeks and see a wide range of dance. Um, before I became uh, the Adelaide Festival Director, I hadn't been to Japan ever and encountering some of the marvellous things that Japanese choreographers were doing at that time. Uh, I went to the uh, the festival in, in Jerusalem uh, and saw phenomenal Israeli companies. Um, I mean, you're going to America quite a lot. Just seeing the range of dance and then having the opportunity to invite them over was really, really fantastic. I think that broadened my understanding of what contemporary dance could do and that in turn of course filtered through to thinking about the amazing group of Australian choreographers there were to work with and yeah at the at, well even at the National Festival of Australian Theatre at that time for instance Meryl Tankard had her company in Canberra she then moved to Adelaide so I was kind of aware of what was going on there so it was a, a really really wonderful education I, I, I thank those festivals so much for giving me so much insight and and learning musically I'm not sure did I did I particularly learn anything new musically again maybe it might have been taking given that my own world had been on a on a more popular scale until I got to the Brecht and Weil and then the Eisler uh, another collaborator of Brecht who is much more difficult and then uh, with the Seymour group singing the Schoenberg Pierrot Lunaire, which I don't think I sang very well, but it was a, a great performance directed by Barry Kosky. We had a lot of fun with that. Um, but I, I think I think the musical experiences maybe broadened out, you know, with 10 Days on the Island, which I created for Tasmania. Um, we only invited artists from other islands at that stage. And so I went to... Uh, Hokkaido in the north of Japan specifically to talk to an an Ainu artist and eventually invited him uh, back to Tasmania. So it may have been in some of those um, uh, 
less, much less mainstream musical places that I started to to learn more things. Uh, I'm I'm in conversation at the moment with a, a young uh, playwright, David Finnegan, um, and uh, David is thinking about a, a an epic long an eight hour kind of performance and I was describing to him the miraculous experience I had in Amsterdam at the Holland Festival uh, where a terrific work of John Taverner his all-night vigil happened in a, a church and the experience of that music where you know people had brought along sleeping bags and you dozed in and out of performances and um, you know the most wonderful experience of all being walking out just as dawn was breaking into the red light district, which is right next to the church <laughs> in Amsterdam. It was uh, it was really one of those those big festival experiences. Um, so I think maybe my musical education, although my musical education I would mainly attribute to the incredible generosity of the musicians I've worked with, right from the the very start, you know, meeting at a, a Holden's Canteen concert while I was at university uh, and meeting Peter Beagley, uh, now Peter Head, who just said to me, heard me sing and I joined his trio soon afterwards, but he just said to me, have you ever heard of Ella Fitzgerald? And I hadn't. <laughs> and it's it's those things. And, you know, even now working with uh, with Michael Morley, it happens with every, every rehearsal. Robin, when I think about my favourite festivals, I'm always drawn to the uh, the street performers, which seem to to create the sort of vibe for the whole event that the staged performances can't quite do, because by definition they're sort of off ticketed away in the corner. Um, what is it for you that makes a great festival? A singer that I've never heard of. They introduce you to so much. So I think my musical is much a creative. And people say to me, you know, do you still like the administrative side? For me, it's never the administrative side. I always have a so-called general manager who's looking after the business. I want to be creative about it. And so I create festivals that make they have an internal logic and they have a narrative and they have a sense. Now, I'm always always aware that some people will only have the time and money to go to one thing or maybe they can afford nothing, which is why you program outside or at the Melbourne Festival, for instance. Every day of the festival I did uh, interviews with the artists. They were free in the Spiegel tent and for many people that was their festival and a very entertaining one it was too. Great <clears throat> conversations with a huge slew of international and, and Australian artists. Um, so, but... If somebody, the theory is, if somebody went to absolutely everything in the festival and I always program it so that in theory you can because that's what I do, I go to everything, if you went to everything, you would find that things really connect in exactly the same way they do as a song set or a cabaret. Ah, okay. That everything, everything makes sense. Now, if you never get my theme, if you never get to know it, it doesn't matter one jot. Every individual show has to be as good as the other. But the the further you dig, the the more you will find. And I believe that when you send out the printed program, that's just the blueprint. The festival itself is what the artist and the audience make of it. And nothing gives me more pleasure than an audience member who 
you know, a week into the festival will come up to me and say, now I saw that and I saw that and did you know that this connected with that and it's something, <clears throat> something that I had never thought of, which means the festival is infinitely more than the blueprint that I issued and it's having a life of its own. Now, I love that in my festivals and I suppose that's often what I seek in other festivals. I, 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 I think... What, what could I go to that seems to make an internal sense to me? How will I deepen my, how, how will I get the opportunity to deepen my experience? And I suppose it's never, it's never one genre, it's never one form. It's more about how, how does this make, I, I can see how that connects with that. I hope that that experience proves to be true, that that will connect with that. That's where I get my food from. A, that's what I consider a great festival. Robin, I want to explore the issue of uh, risk in the arts with you. You've uh, performed songs including uh, Dicks Don't Grow on Trees and Menstruation Blues. Uh, do you ever worry that uh, the Australian arts scene is a, is a little too polite, a little too demure? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I've never... I've learned, of course, that some of the things that I do um, have appeared to be controversial, but I can say hand on heart that I never, ever set out to be controversial. Um, all I ever did was, you know, echo what was on my mind at the time, what I felt needed to be said. Um, I often said it in very funny ways because that's just me. I kind of like a bit of fun. Um, I don't know whether it's safe. One thing I could say to you on that on that note is as Australia started to open up uh, last year and then closed up a bit and opened up a bit, et cetera, et cetera, I was writing in a couple of publications how fortunate Australia was to have so much good weather and people enjoying the outdoor environment so much. And so, so much could happen on outdoor stages, etc. And I think that continues to be true. People are really programming for the outdoor spaces, sometimes because they have to, but often because they think that there is a, that's a safer way to be and it's still enjoyable. My question became, can you still deliver the really challenging stuff in that outdoor environment or is it all going to be fun in the sun? And certainly what, what George, my collaborator, said uh, as he tried to investigate the way things were opening up, he felt that venues were programming pretty safe music, pretty safe programming in a way that was sort of, um, well, people have had a hard time, let's cheer everybody up, and that it could be, and it seemed to me, is it going to be harder just at the moment to program the very stuff that many of us live for. That is that thing that I say that the arts is the safest place for a dangerous conversation. It's pretty hard to get out onto the a big stage in the sun and surround yourself with happy people suddenly happy to be back in the audience and deal with the most difficult subjects that are around at the moment. And yet it is one of the great functions of the arts is to bring difficult topics out into conversation and deal with them in a ways where you're still in wonder of the artistry and you're applauding the skill, but you're thinking about really, really different things. I, I, I think about Brecht again, who said he wasn't interested uh, when an audience hung its 
brains up along with its coat before it came into the into the theatre. Um, he wanted people to have their brains and their thinking and, you know, their principles, their ethics there all the time. Well, I'm very much uh, of, of that ilk and I don't believe that they contravene things. I don't think you have to sweep the hardest things in life under the carpet in order to enjoy a performance, songs, drama, whatever. Um, so I just do wonder at the moment whether we are in a period where it will be harder uh, to get to get funding or to get the venues or to get to the platforms where those incredibly difficult things happen. They often happen indoors, don't they? They often happen in small, intimate transactions, those often life-changing moments in theatre or in dad, in, in, indeed in music or song, uh, those things that, that really, really make you think. And as I say about art and politics, the artists Sometimes, uh, but, you know, a, a Billy Bragg or a Pete Seeger are all, or Arlo Guthrie, uh, not Arlo Guthrie, um, that they are, they are on the front line as well as being performers. But very often the role of the artist is simply to bring into the public domain, to write songs about, to write plays about, to write shows about the things that are most difficult and to give heart to those who are in the front line. That is more often the role of the artist. Are those things going to be more difficult for a while until people get through to some kind of new order? I am disinclined to say post-pandemic because I'm not sure that there is any really any such thing. I think we are in very much a new order. Um, have people been so disturbed that the thought is, well, all we want is cheer up stuff? I, I, I think that that's a bit of a dangerous situation for artists. Yes, I've always liked the uh, slogan of Austin, Texas, the uh, the capital of the state, uh, keep Austin weird. Uh, and it seems to be a great way of, of sustaining the quirky culture there that you get not only in uh, music, but also in uh, design, architecture and, and other realms of public life. Uh, how do we sustain this, the... Um, the equivalent of a kind of fail-fast, uh, risk-taking mentality that that seems to thrive in the venture capital environment, but uh, uh, often isn't celebrated as much in in art. How do we how do we cele celebrate the uh, the great belly flops of art, knowing that uh, that there that that is that kind of risk-taking is necessary for getting breakthroughs. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, one might say the same in the same in science. Although science too uh, has suffered, um, you know, the 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 lack of intelligence around the fact that that consistent failure is exactly what brings the breakthrough in the end, and that you have to fund everything. And I think that's not accepted in the arts. Um, I think you will only get the greatest work by making sure that everybody that wants to have a crack has a crack. Um, and a lot of the stuff will be not good. It won't be to the artist's satisfaction. It won't have an audience. Um, it, it will be maybe even the worst thing time wasted for some people. Um, but, you know, we also say that of the scientist who has gone up completely the wrong track. And yet at the same time as they may feel they've lost years what on, on what proves to be the wrong track, it is their very work that will have taught somebody else not to go up that track and do do something else. I think that you have to, um, I, I, I believe that you've got to sustain the best, um, but if you don't look after all the rest, then your best will also be in trouble. And, of course, I constantly go back to the scientist Brian Walker 
CSIRO, written a couple of fantastic books about resilience, and he's taught me so much. I've spoken about it often, um, which is the fact that, to use the simplest environmental argument, um, every, every system is born, grows, flourishes and starts to decay and die. We as human beings are exactly the same. A forest is the same. At the point where it's a beautiful canopy, if all you do is feed the canopy and you don't take care of the undergrowth and make sure that it's healthy as well, that you know the weeds, the wildness, all that underneath, then when the canopy starts to atrophy, um, you will have it, it will collapse and you will have a time of chaos. That's not all bad because the nutrients will be taken up by new forms. It's just it will be a very long period of chaos and nothing. You won't have anything to show for it. If you've taken care of the weeds and the undergrowth and all those other things going, by the time the big beautiful canopy collapses, you'll have another new forest already up and springing and growing. What could be a better metaphor for the arts? Yes, take care of the top. Look after it. We don't want our finest companies, however you define that. We don't want our finest companies to have to go to the wall for any reason. We want them well run. We want them delivering terrific work from great companies like Back to Back that works with varying uh, abilities to the various opera companies or orchestras, etc. But at the same time, let's make sure that the jazz musicians are, are, are getting getting the feed as well. And they're not. Most jazz musicians live on the smell of an oily rag. They don't They don't get the same kind of support. Um, you've got to look after the whole. And, and one of the difficulties about the arts is people look at the finished product and they have no idea what's actually gone into the work. I, I would be a great believer in much more visibility of process. I even, in a couple of advice, advisory positions I've been in about new cultural centres, I'm thinking about, you know, double-glazed uh, open rehearsal room walls where with the permission of director and company you can see a company working you can see an orchestra rehearsing you can see a play being rehearsed or choreography etc where you feel safe for people to look at that just to be able to see what's going on the years and years of work it takes and yet what's the real experience an audience will come or a critic will come to a show and on the strength of one viewing will either praise or worse, dismiss a work um, on the basis of that one thing, not thinking that's taken years and years to put together. So I think we need to be more observant of process. And I, I just think about an equity of support. I think make sure that you're funding all the risk exactly as you see, exactly as it has in venture capital and exactly as it should happen in science. Robin, final questions. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Uh, go back to the piano lessons that your parents bought for you when you abandoned because you didn't like the teacher. But you've done so well without formal training. Why do you do? you think you would have had a, a a more even more illustrious career with a bit of a bit more formal training? It's a bit like it's a bit like my voice. Once the opera singers heard me sing in the Seven Deadly Sins. Uh, they all heard a terrific contralto voice and wanted to turn me into a into a singer. And um, I had a couple of goes at thinking I could take lessons. Um, and, you know, had they smoothed over the break in my voice 
um, I probably had the potential of aiming towards somebody wonderful like Marilyn Horn, one of the greatest singers in the world. Um, on the other hand, had they done that, I never would have been able to yodel, that is, um, making use of that crack in the voice. So I have no regrets. It's just that if I'd been able to read music, um, I probably at this stage would have been able to do some more interesting things. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I think the answer is in reverse. It's something I didn't believe and I do now. And that is, ah. yeah, and that is I never believed that a population would take its behavioural clue from its leaders. And now I do. Now I see that um, leading figures, uh, this is sometimes politicians, uh, sometimes other people, behave in a certain way and I think the population looks at that and thinks if they can do that, I can do it. And I think it's very unfortunate in some instances. When are you most happy? Um, I always think of the Brecht song in which he says, if all chase after happiness, happiness comes in last. I don't see happiness as a goal or a fixed <laughs> moment. I think... I think uh, I think happiness comes at very for me tiny moments of consciousness that can be doing anything it can be anywhere when I can stop and say I'm happy at this moment I'm happy that's usually when I don't have things hanging over my head when my mind is free I can be anywhere when that happens but on reflecting on this um I thought I think there are moments, I know that I'm always pretty happy at the end of a performance because I feel, oh, I didn't fall over, I didn't mess up too many notes. And I reckon there may be happiness right in the middle of a performance. I may be feeling that my body is working, my voice is working, I've got the audience in my grasp. Um, it's a it's a wonderfully powerful moment. I mean, I'm, I'm in power of all the things that I can do. I'm enjoying it. The audience is enjoying it. And I, I would almost, whether, whether that's satisfaction, I'm not sure whether it's exactly the same as a carpenter who's doing a, making a great join um, at that time and feels satisfied or whether that also could be happiness. But they're, they're, they're fleeting things. They're not a goal, that's for sure. Yes, it's like the uh, butterfly theory of happiness, that uh, it only comes and lands on your shoulder when you sit still for long enough. Uh, what's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Well, I guess, I mean, singing is, is very, very important. Um, and, and if in coming years I won't be singing so much, then I have to think about the significance of that. But when I'm singing, I have to be mentally engaged. When I'm learning a new song, I've got to be very, very mentally engaged. Um, at the time uh, of rehearsing or performing, I've got to get the notes and the words in the right place. Um, it's mentally engaging, but of course, especially for somebody that's had asthma since they were born, more or less, um, it's it's physically incredibly good. Um, I, during the Deacon lectures, which I curated one year in Melbourne, I was sitting around at an, an after panel uh, dinner we were having, or maybe it was a lunch at a Chinese restaurant, and I had some very important people around the table, just small gathering, and the the professor 
of um, I think neuroscience it was from Cambridge was sitting there. Some one of the one of the speakers had heard that I yodeled, and they asked if I would. So I stood up and I yodeled, and and she looked up at me and she said, mm, "Do you get endorphins when you do that?" <laughs> I thought that's exactly that's exactly what I get. You know, when I sing, um, everything is open. The mind is engaged. This is important. You know, the mind is deeply engaged because you're having to get this words and music in the right place at the right time. But you are physically breathing as beautifully as you possibly can, and and that's a source of I think um, enormous emotional, mental, and physical health for me. And finally, Robin, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I would have to say um, it's John Willett, the the editor of Brecht, the dramaturg, the intellectual, um, the ex-assistant uh, editor of the Times Literary Supplement who enjoyed my singing and brought me to, to London. He, he was an incredibly clever, wise man. And if I recall to you one incident that happened in the Spanish club in uh, in Sydney when John had come out from Britain, was doing a bit of work with the University of New South Wales at the time. And my manager at the time, Di Matson and I, had just had a victory about an incident that had happened with my second album, The Wild Girl in the Heart. And there'd been an incident and uh, it, it involved the company wanting to put a sticker on the label saying, on the front of the cover saying, this album contains foul language or something. And it was actually my settings of great Australian poets. So we went into bat for the poets and said, this is ridiculous. We're not going to put a label. And we won the victory. So we were sitting down over some delicious garlic prawns with John and telling him this story and then with glee sort of rubbing our hands together and say, and that bloke that was trying to do that to that to us got the sack. We grinned. And John looked at us and he said, hmm, no bread and butter for him, eh? And I don't think I've ever been pulled up by my bootstraps by anyone in such a way to say, you know, how dare you be joyful about somebody that just lost their job and now has to go and feed the family. Mm. And it was a real lesson. And I think from then on, John was, you know, very, very insistent on precisely that kind of reasoning. And indeed, it was him and Wild Cherry who were essentially saying to me in Adelaide, give up all this popular crap that you're doing, you know, stop singing for your supper, do the Brecht. I knew very well at the time. I was having internal arguments with myself and, and with them saying, but, you know, I'll never be a celebrity and I'll never be popular and draw crowds if I'm going to sing this really difficult stuff. And they basically were saying to me, forget all that. Just just don't. The, what you have to do, you do this well. This is the stuff that you have to do. And, of course, eventually it was through Brecht that I resolved that I could be a better, I taught for a couple of years at high school, you can be a better teacher through being this kind of artist than you can hooked into one institution. They were right. I fought it at the time, but I think it was John Willett in the end that, that really did it for me. And, and, and he is a, I guess this is the main thing about the person who he would never have called himself a mentor, but he was. And I think the significance is that you always remember those moments and you are always being guided by that advice. What a beautiful place to end our conversation. Uh, Robin Archer, singer, director and national treasure, thanks so much for taking the time to appear on the Good Life podcast today. 
It's been great. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this conversation, I reckon you'll love our past talks with Paul Grabowski, uh, Sheridan Harbridge and Carl Vine. If you enjoyed this show, please leave it a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.